Hey, Collective. Uh, oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, Ryan Smith, uh, boring first name and last name. Uh, I'm just kind of like Wonder Bread. Uh, just kind of like sneak in. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, here uh, in town with my wife, Erin, uh, uh, who's one of my favorite human beings, um, which that makes it sound like I'm an alien. Um, <laughs> I'm not an alien. Well, that's what an alien would say. Um, so uh, anyway, uh, yeah, really excited to be with you guys. I've been looking forward uh, to this day for a few months uh, since we've been kind of talking. And uh, specifically, um, I get like this super fun honor of getting to close out the series that you guys have been in uh, over this summer uh, called Oddity, uh, where you've been looking at some of the odd sayings of Jesus, the things that you kind of read over and you go, wait a minute, like that doesn't fit in my brain in the way that I see the world. Um, because we, we need that every now and then, don't we? Um, for Jesus to kind of get in and mess around with the way that we see the world. And so I'm so excited um, that I get to close that out, looking at uh, one more uh, story where uh, Jesus kind of shows up and messes with our preconceived notions, our assumptions about who Jesus is. Um, like I said, necessary, good thing, because every single one of us does this to every single person that we meet. We look at someone and based off of uh, their dress, based off of uh, the way they carry themselves, we put on them assumptions about who they are and what they're like. And we do that with Jesus as well. Um, some examples of how uh, we as weird humans have done this over the past 2,000 years. Uh, the first you'll see uh, is a picture. Um, how many of you guys recognize uh, this? Warner Salman, the head of Christ, 1940, not that old. Uh, over 500 million reproductions of this picture of Jesus. Um, and he's very handsome. Um, but, um, I mean, those, that hair, like, I pray for that kind of hair. Uh, <laughs> but what's one of the problems here is, um, well, uh, what does he look like? <laughs> he's pretty Caucasian. He's a pretty white guy. Uh, we're going back to Israel in the first century. I don't know if he would look like that. And so here we have this kind of preconceived notion that for many of us, 500 million of us, the odds are one of the first visual depictions of Jesus that we get are um, this guy who looks like he sells like CBD oils downtown or something. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so what happens then is we get this lens through which we look at Jesus, uh, and then these things continue. And so like even there's a Mormon church in Minnesota this week that uh, hundreds of tracks that they put out, you could put up the next one, uh, Went out with, who knows who that is? <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi, thank you. Um, so there was a, a Mormon church in Minnesota that put out hundreds of pamphlets, like their tracks for their Sunday gathering that they got together on, and, and it had a quote from Jesus and the picture of Obi-Wan Kenobi on it. Um, and so Jesus is, is a, a Jedi. Uh, I think that, that's who I think of when I think of Jesus. Um, but we have all of these preconceived notions, these weird ways of saying uh, Jesus, uh, whether it's uh, Obi-Wan or, or, you know, Caucasian CBD oil Jesus or um, uh, the movie Ricky Bobby, like Will Ferrell's character praying at the dinner table with Mountain Dew and their son, you know, Walker and Texas Ranger, that he, uh, he, he's praying to Jesus, you know, dear tiny baby Jesus, gold fleece diaper, don't even know a word yet. And then like his friend Cal Naughton Jr., John C. Riley's character comes in and is like, when I think of Jesus, I like to think of him in a tuxedo t-shirt because he's formal, but he likes to party. And he's leading like Leonard Skinner, like his lead vocals with an angel band. Like there's totally this weird way that when Jesus happens, we, we just all come with our assumptions of what he looks like. But even more than that, where we're actually going to find him. 
There's this huge thing uh, that happens on the internet. Um, there's a lot of weird things that happen on the internet. <laughs> One in which um, is where people will just post pictures of Jesus showing up in their three cheese pizza on the lid of their barbecue sauce uh, or a Cheeto. And, and I, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, it's just that, that we have more people that are looking for Jesus in these places and what he looks like. I don't know. The Cheeto one is a, is a pull, uh, but that's most Cheetos. Um, so here, here's all this, silly as it can be, um, whether it is um, our white Jesus from the 1940s, uh, whether it is tuxedo t-shirt G- uh, Jesus, baby Jesus, Jedi Jesus, Cheeto, you know, Dorito dust Jesus, uh, it is so uh, easy for us to laugh at these sorts of things. Um, and yet, uh, every single one of us have an underlying propensity to form Jesus according to our own assumptions about him. It may not be as crazy as tuxedo t-shirt, leaning you know, vocals for Leonard Skinner, but we have a lens through which we look at Jesus that can actually get in the way of us ever finding him. And so whether that's uh, us, I mean, we would rather look for Jesus in our breakfast burrito than like in the Bible <laughs> or uh, in, in our uh, Christian, fellow Christians, or in our, in our neighbor who's in suffering. We'd rather look for Jesus in my Cheerios, and where is he here? Or, or we just, we, we do this. Uh, it's easier for us to imagine Jesus as someone who looks like, thinks like, talks like us, and really doesn't challenge much of the way that we see the world. And, and the thing is, I say that all of us do this because this has literally been the story of Christians uh, for 2,000 years. And so if you have some sense of, I might be seeing Jesus wrong, or maybe what assumptions do I bring, the, the good news is, is that you're not alone in that. But Christians have been doing that since day one. <laughs> um, and that's what we're going to look at today, uh, is the, as we end out the Oddity series, is looking at one more odd story with Jesus. Uh, one more, uh, not only odd story where he does odd things, but even says odd things, and all of it is about confronting our assumptions about Jesus so that we might actually really see him. Sound good? So uh, what we're looking at is Luke chapter 24. Uh, If you want to begin turning there, for those of you that have your Bibles, I know it'll be on the slides behind me, Um, but we're going to be looking at verses uh, 13 all the way through 35. And so just as a roadmap for where we're going, I like the roadmap because this, um, even if it's a bad sermon, you guys still know, okay, we're almost done. Um, (laughs) First off, what we find is um, Jesus and these disciples and, and this blindness Uh, that occurs. We'll see that in a moment. The assumptions that blind. Uh, Then we're going to move into where Jesus responds to the disciples, giving kind of the message of the Messiah, what he really is and what he's all about, and how that confronts the way that we see him. Uh, Finally, then we're going to have the meal that reveals in some of the coolest stuff that Luke does in all of his gospel. And then finally, uh, the fellowship of the burning heart, as A.W. Tozer, uh, where our passage ends. So that's where we're going. Why don't we turn our attention to Luke chapter uh, 24, verse 13. Well, we'll first look at the assumptions that blind in verses 13 through 24. So read with me on the slide. Awesome. That very day, uh, referring to the first Sunday, uh, resurrection, uh, Easter, the first Easter Sunday, that very day, uh, two of them, two of Jesus' disciples were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, the craziest weekend ever, your disciple being betrayed murdered, trial, execution. Uh, Yeah, that's what they're talking about. And while they're walking on the road to Emmaus and discussing this together, uh, Jesus drew near. (laughs) So good. He starts walking next to them, like awkwardly, like, who's this guy behind us? And he, uh, they, they look back, and here it is in verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. 
And disciples who have known Jesus for years, and they can't recognize him. Interesting. Let's keep reading. And Jesus said to them, uh, what's this conversation you're holding? What you guys talking about? <laughs> so good. What are you guys talking like? Imagine this. If you're talking with a friend walking down the street, and the stranger just walks up and goes, what are you guys talking about? It's like, nothing that concerns you, bro. Like, leave me alone. That's, Jesus is totally comfortable. Hey, guys, what's up? I love it. Um, what are you guys talking about as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them named uh, Cleopas, uh, who was one of the disciples present for Jesus' crucifixion, uh, John's gospel tells us, which leads many to believe uh, that the other disciple that's walking with him is his wife. Um, so it's a husband and wife, um, potentially. Don't, that's, that's Bible nerd geek stuff, but don't worry about it. Um, so Cleopas and whoever it is, uh, they're sitting there and they look sad. And then they look at Jesus and they go, um, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? You don't know what's going on? And I love it. Jesus goes, what things? <laughs> he is the thing that happened in Jerusalem. What are you guys talking about? Uh, what, what's going on? I love it. Jesus is so funny. Um, and they said to him, seriously? Concerning? Seriously? Jesus of Nazareth? A man uh, who is a prophet. He's mighty in deed and in word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. And even more than that, some women who were a part of our company, they amazed us. They went down to the tomb earlier this morning, and they said that they did not find his body. They even came back saying that they had a vision of angels, and those angels told them that Jesus was alive. Some of those who were there with us went to the tomb, but they found it just as the women had said to them. But they didn't see Jesus. So stop here. So in the midst of them retelling the story of Jesus, we have to remember they're telling the story to the guy they're talking about. And so the question that Luke invites us to ask is, why don't these disciples see Jesus? Right? What's going on here? Someone that they've known for uh, at least three years, and, and they're looking right at him, talking to him, and for some reason they don't see that it's Jesus. And so there's some that go, well, it might be God that was blinding their eyes or the devil that might have been, you know, he, he, he snuck in. And, and there's, you know, we can have that fun dialogue. I think the narrative, what Luke's writing is he's inviting us to almost see this historical account as a sort of parable, a sort of story in which we kind of read our own stories into it, that we are the disciples on the way to Emmaus. And in the narrative, it seems as though the very thing that's blinding these disciples from seeing Jesus is their assumptions about who he is and what he does. Do you see this? But the reason why they can't see Jesus is because they already have a way that they see Jesus. They recount the story of what happened that weekend, and they have all the right Bible data. They have all the right data about Jesus, a mighty prophet in word and deed. They have the cross. They have the resurrection. They've got the Sermon on the Mount memorized, They've put, but they can't put the story together in a way that makes sense. Notice their response after they tell the story back in verse 21, that they tell the story of Jesus but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Another way of saying it was, he wasn't. Our hopes were not fulfilled, that Jesus was not the one to redeem Israel. For these disciples, it was the cross, Jesus' death, that destroyed their hopes in him being who they thought he was. 
You see, when they say the redeemer of Israel, we read the word redemption or redeem, and it's a you know, religious word of the highest order. We just hear redeem, and we're just kind of like, we read over it. We're just like, Bible word, put that over there, ignore that. For them, in the first century, redemption of Israel was a, um, it was a specifically politically loaded term in the work of what they thought Jesus had come to do as the Christ, as the Messiah, the promised one who would redeem Israel like Moses redeemed Israel from Egypt, like David so many times redeemed Israel from the battle, from what was going on. They were looking for this new exodus, this military victory, this Messiah who would come and uh, defeat and usher in an era of peace through victory by crushing the oppressor Rome. It was a redemption through revolt. It's no small detail that Luke kind of winks at us and says they were going on the road to Emmaus. So Emmaus was the headquarters for the last failed revolt through the Maccabean revolt. It was another claimed Messiah, another one who was going to bring. And so Luke kind of notes they're literally missing Jesus as they're walking after what their hopes and desires are, at least the ruins of them. And so the whole thing Luke's calling us to consider is, is what is going on within this story? These assumptions that are blinding them from seeing who Jesus is. For them, although their hope might have been in Jesus, their assumption of who he was led them then to look at the cross, to look at his suffering, to look at his death as what made the, the assumptions, their hopes for him, null and void. We backed the wrong horse is what they're saying. It was fun while it lasted, but we are on the losing team now. And so you know what? We're packing up our stuff and we're going home. We're done with the Jesus thing. And, and this is where they're at, is even in the midst of this, yeah, we have people telling us that he might be up from the dead. And okay, first of all, that's impossible. Second, even if he was the Messiah, as we think he should be, then he wouldn't even have died in the first place. And so the assumption is blinding them and keeping them from seeing Jesus. It is, it is just, it's the same things going on with the Doritos and the Ricky Bobby. And all of it, it's, it's, they're missing Jesus by looking for him in a way that he's not actually there in front of them. And so the invitation for you and I is to pause, to let Luke do the work that I believe he's wanting us to do and to think of ourselves here, to think of loved ones, those of us or, or friends and family members who have been tempted or are tempted or have simply walked away from Jesus, they've gone down the road to Emmaus. I'm going home. I'm kind of done with this whole thing. Or maybe that's you. Maybe you're presently walking the road of, of, of life with people talking about Jesus, talking about what Jesus has done, still a disciple of Jesus. And yet, as you look over what that conversation leads to, it leads you to being sad and disillusioned and lost. And you're kind of just like, I just don't, maybe the Jesus thing just isn't for me. As Dallas Willard writes, your system is perfectly designed to get you the results you're currently getting. Your system is perfectly designed to get you the results you're currently getting. As it applies to this, maybe the results that you're getting when it comes to Jesus, your confusion and sadness, your disillusionment aren't a problem with Jesus, but the system through which you look at him. Maybe the system that you've developed and the assumptions that you've picked up over the course of your life are the very thing that are keeping you from seeing Jesus for all that he is. And so that's what's going on here. 
That seems to be at least what Jesus is inviting us to think of. As he moves into the next passage where now he tries to help those disciples and us unpack our assumptions as we see the real Jesus in his story, how he defines himself, as he describes how he introduces himself. So uh, let's move into uh, the next couple of verses, uh, 25 through 27, as Jesus deconstructs their faith so he can put it back together again. Look with me in verse 25. So they say all this, and then Jesus said to them, oh, foolish ones, <laughs> dummies, <laughs> you idiots, <laughs> is what he says. Jesus is so nice. Uh, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, what? All the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things that were concerning himself. Jesus says your disillusionment, your lack of seeing what's going on with this Jesus thing is a lack of you seeing the Bible thing and what's going on within this story. He said, you guys are looking through the story of what happened in Jerusalem this weekend, of crucifixion, the death of the Messiah, and, and you're, you're over the whole resurrection thing. And he's going, have, he says, have you, have you read your Bibles? Do you guys understand that this is the story of what is at work here? And he does this by giving us kind of the gospel in a shot glass, what you could call the Emmaus gospel or the V-shaped gospel is what some, oh my goodness, I made it and it got so, that's my design job, it's going to be Okay. Um, it's pixelated. I know some of you guys are designer. You're like, don't judge me, please. Um, we'll fix it. Um, so this is, this is what has been uh, called uh, the Emmaus gospel or the V-shaped gospel. Uh, this gets repeated and expanded upon over and over again throughout the New Testament and by the early church. That when we talk about Jesus, this is the story that we're talking about. That the story of the gospel is the one story that's in accordance with the whole story of the Bible and the story of the Messiah who would go down into suffering and then ascend into glory. This is the Apostles' Creed. It's Philippians 2. It's Colossians chapter 1. The humiliation of Christ so that he might emerge into glory that goes out into the blessings. And so Jesus has it all here in like this little tiny shot glass, like this gospel shot glass, in just a little couple of words. This is it. Didn't you know this was the story of the Bible? And they're going, I guess not. And so what Jesus unpacks is that for them, to miss any of these four elements of the Emmaus gospel, the gospel, the Bible story, the Messiah, going into suffering and arising to glory, to miss out on any of these four is to miss out on the story of the Bible, which is to miss out on him. This is what he gives them. You guys are sad and disillusioned because you don't know what to do with Good Friday and with my death. He goes, didn't you know that was part of the plan? Didn't you know that this is what the gospel is all about? And so like the disciples on Emmaus, there's different ways that we can miss out on Jesus. Uh, there's different ways that our assumptions of what this story actually is like that we can actually get in the way of us seeing Jesus for who he really is. So the first might be um, uh, the way that the disciples saw Jesus. You can go to the next one. Um, which is uh, they didn't have a system for suffering within their understanding of the Bible story and the Messiah who goes into glory. For them, it was a, a parade through which they would follow the Messiah who brought you know, the uh, Israelite dream uh, of crushing Rome, of going as the Messiah to glory, no suffering involved, thank you very much. This is the way that the disciples were seeing it. And yet, there are still many of you and I here that we're not holding out for Jesus to give us the uh, Israelite dream, but it very, very well may be the American dream that a system, a place of suffering within our lives leads us to completely write off this whole Jesus thing altogether. 
We assume that Jesus will give us all that we ever wanted or needed. That suffering in Jesus's mission and us as his people is foreign to us, if not outright detestable. And so the prosperity parade is one that is loud, exciting, and fun and attractive. One that we, we all celebrate following the Jesus who wants me to be happy, healthy, and wealthy and, and get everything that I've wanted. But we can't, we can't march in this kind of a parade for long before we start tripping over this thing called real life. As we come across suffering in our lives, or at least this much, or that kind of suffering, we begin to wonder why is, I thought Jesus brought me more than this. I, I, and the whole system breaks down. We end up like the disciples in Emmaus. We're sad because the vision that we had for who Jesus was and what he was going to bring us don't line up with the reality of what he actually has come to do. We lose out on the Bible story and we miss out on Jesus. And so we may not be the Emmaus disciples, but we are all prone to reshaping and assuming. Some other examples, just to play around with these four. Uh, the next you could call Eeyore theology. Um, <laughs> Uh, or I come from this sort of a church, but Calvinism. Uh, uh, um, it, it's a stereotype, but it sticks for a reason. Um, so this isn't a system in which uh, there is an absence of suffering, but one in which we have limited out the gl- Jesus's ascension to glory as our story. We kind of see Jesus as like the whole story of the gospel and the Bible is how I'm awful and I suck and I'm like a, a spider over God's wrath and I'm a worm and like we just kind of stop there. <laughs> And we spend our lives crucifying ourselves because we really, at the end of the day, don't believe Jesus ever got down from his cross. And, and this is the whole thing. And so what ends up happening is we go through life like that stuffed donkey from Winnie the Pooh who's just mopey and like depressive all the time and how it becomes a game within churches where we try to prove ourselves as being holier than thou because we feel bad about how bad we actually are. And then over time we just don't experience the sort of life and joy that we would want to experience with Jesus. And so it leaves us disillusioned and we walk away. We, we take our stuff and we go home like the Emmaus disciples. Others of us in our uh, 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 hyper-individualistic uh, Western culture, uh, the idea of a savior, someone else who comes and saves me, the idea of a Messiah, far too distasteful. And so what we get out of that is what, it's super cheesy, dad joke, but a Messiah uh, complex, <laughs> which is one that I don't need a Messiah, an anointed divine savior, that's me. And so it is my job to enter into the suffering of my wounds, my uh, pains that I've experienced, the cultural expectations that have been placed on me. Uh, like I said, my childhood wounds, my trials. And as I go through those, like a, a, a chrysalis, I will come out on the other side, the glorious human that I was made to be. Whether through career, relationships, religion, uh, or, or burning man, uh, whatever it might be, I don't need to look to a divine savior. That is me. And if I enter into my suffering, I will emerge on the other side, the glorious human that I feel like I ought to be. And as that sort of Messiah, not only will I save myself, but I will save the world by becoming the hero who is outraged at every injustice and at the end of the day, can't really do anything of consequence about it. We cannot rise to the task of saving ourselves and saving the world, and so we are riddled with anxiety, frustration, self-righteousness, and trying to be a Messiah for ourselves, a Savior, a Christ, whatever language you want to use. Or we walk with a self-righteous superiority as we kind of sneak things under the rug and look down our nose at other people. There's all these ways that we can miss Jesus. 
And for Jesus, it's this weird little four-point V-shaped God. He goes, if you have this, you'll get me. If you miss one of these things, the whole thing falls apart. The last one, and I think this one is the one that's most prevalent in our culture today, is uh, what you could call a Build-A-Jesus workshop. Uh, how many of you have been to a Build-A-Bear? You even know what that is. Build-A-Bear, no, uh, just know of it. Build-A-Bear workshop. You walk in, and they give you, you pick out the animal that you want, and you get to put a little T-shirt on it, and like little glasses, and make it look all cute. And... Um, So if we miss out on, maybe not Messiah, not suffering, not glory, but we love the idea of Jesus, this like savior guy, the ideal perfect human transforming humanity, but really this kind of thing just gets in the way of that. What ends up happening is we embark on what you could call the build a Jesus workshop, where we can take either our uh, progressive sexual ethic or our um, judgmental, regressive sexual ethic, and we can kind of stitch together a Jesus who looks and sounds like us, and when we squeeze his tummy, he says something that sounds nice. He thinks the way that we think, and he's a great mascot that we can all march behind, and he's an incredible teddy bear to cuddle with, but he's not alive. And this is the one that I've found with many of us that have been raised in a a Christian or maybe adjacent to Christianity, some kind of cultural thing that we love the idea of Jesus, and yet we have just, either we don't get it or we've had people that have tried to give it to us in the wrong ways, that we think that we need to separate Jesus from the Bible in order to get him. I was listening to a podcast rec- recorded in your guys' backyard here in the city on the way down of someone that was saying, it was so freeing for me to be able to find Jesus apart from who the Bible says he is. And I was like, okay. I was like, just put down my sermon notes. Um, and, but that's, that's how many of our friends function at best. Is, is whether it's this cosmic Christ or that one that he's represented in various religions, Jesus goes, to get me is to get the Bible. You don't get to pick and choose. You don't get a build a Jesus workshop. Sorry, as fun as it is. Like, again, Dallas Ward said, your system is perfectly designed to get you the results that you're currently getting. And so the question is to consider, in that V-shaped gospel of what Jesus is doing there, of in accordance with the scripture, the Messiah who went into suffering and emerged, emerged gloriously, which of those am I prone to just, that's not for me. And in doing so, miss out on Jesus, where I can be walking with him, sitting and talking about him, hearing Bible about him, and still just not really get him. It's an invitation to consider that for ourselves. And this is all according to Jesus. This isn't like a Ryan thing. This is Jesus defining himself. Oh, you don't get me? Here's why. You're missing out on this story. And so Jesus gives them this incredible story that comes together in who he is, this oddity, as it were that once we see it, it couldn't have been any other way. But what's crazy is even after this master theology class, the disciples still don't see Jesus. Do you, you catch that? We, the, the eyes haven't been opened yet, so let's keep reading. Let's go to the meal that reveals, uh, verses 28 through 31. Now, so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he was going a little bit farther. <laughs> Come on, you guys. Luke is awesome. Like, Jesus is like, well, I really got to get to, you know, so-and-so's place. He's expecting me. They're like, no, please stay, Jesus. He's like, I guess. Like, this is the whole, Luke is so funny. Um, so Jesus, you know, they finally convince him. They urged him strongly, please stay with us. It's late at night. The day is now far spent. And so Jesus went in to stay with them. And when they sat down at the table, they had dinner together. Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And what happens? Their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. <laughs> Just the bread poof, falls on the ground. They're like, where did he go? Um, 
or like at a ninja, like you just like smoke bomb. They're like, oh, where'd you? I don't know. Um, what happened there? Um, so what happens? After a long night, they make resting place. They convince Jesus to join them for dinner, bread, and probably a lot of wine after a long walk, and their brains are just like, you know, you know he's explained to them the whole Bible about himself now. Uh, they obviously need a long, a long dinner. And Luke, using the same language that he, this is so cool, just a few chapters earlier when he was talking about the first Lord's Supper, the first communion, where Jesus was gathering and, and celebrating Passover and telling how it's about me, it's the same language he took, blessed, broke, and gave. And the Lord's Supper is, poof. oh, he's been here the whole time. Hey, Jesus. <laughs> so cool. And uh, now two things are happening here. One is Luke is detailing how in this story, it's, it's not enough just to have theology in our heads, right? He's just unpacked to them the whole story of the Bible, and they still don't see Jesus. So it's not enough just to have the right biblical perspective. We must, at some level, have a meal with Jesus, fellowship, relationship with Jesus, where specifically in the picture of communion that we're given here, we literally ingest the gospel story of the Messiah who went into suffering, his body being broken and his blood shed so that he might ascend to glory and bring us out of our suffering into glory with him. Now, on one level, that is totally happening, but, but Luke is much cooler than that. And so he does something awesome right here that's so profound. And it begins with this question, where else in the Bible is there a story where someone takes gives and eats, and then their eyes are opened. Uh, back on page three of the Bible, Genesis chapter three, it tells the story of Adam and Eve uh, who are there in the garden with, with kind of this one uh, system, one way of understanding the story that God is telling. And they get flattered and misled by this oddity, this enigmatic serpent who uh, calls them to not hear the story that God's given them, but for them to fill it in with their own assumptions. They are the first Emmaus Gospels. And the serpent calls to them and pulls them aside. Did God really say, is this actually the story that God told you? And it leads them to taking, giving, eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And their eyes are opened to their nakedness, their fragility, their shame, their guilt. They're afraid, and so they run and hide and cover themselves. And in the midst of that story, God promised that one day someone was going to come and anointed a Messiah, is the word, son, who would come against the serpent, one who would enter into humanity's suffering as he was crushed by the serpent, is the word, bit by the serpent, and at the same time would gloriously be victorious over the serpent as he crushed the serpent's head the Messiah, who would go into suffering and ascend to glory. Was it not the whole story of the Bible that's been anticipating this? And here you have at this small dinner table in the Israeli countryside, this oddity, the odd-awaited Messiah anointed Jesus, the Son of God, this new Adam, who is now not taking from the tree that leads to death, but literally his body that is now signified in this bread, that is now like the tree, of, it is the tree of life that was broken on the tree of death, his cross. Like there's, Luke is just pulling together all of these things of trying to see that Jesus isn't bluffing when he said, wasn't the whole story of the Bible about the Messiah who would suffer and go into glory. He's showing how since page three, since the beginning, this is what the whole Bible's been building up to. And so here you have Jesus taking, breaking, giving, and eating. 
and having eyes that are opened, not to shame, fear, and guilt, but rather to forgiveness and courage and freedom and seeing God once again. And as soon as they see him, smoke grenade, he's gone. He vanishes from their sight, lest we actually think that we ever really have Jesus figured out. And it it points to the fact that this thing of finding Jesus and seeing him for who he really is, is and isn't a one-time event. It is one time that there was something that happened where Jesus revealed to me, and yet I keep coming back to him as I'm revealed, or he's revealed to me even more. So, and then it ends in just a second with what's the, what is the response of these disciples when they see Jesus? And as a pattern, what's that for us as well? Let's look uh, in the final passages. Look at me in 32 as we finish. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while we talked on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? And they rose that same hour. That's a way of saying immediately. <laughs> they ran and returned. They ran back to Jerusalem and they found the house where the 11, the other disciples were gathered there together. They kicked the door down. And before they could say anything, the disciples said to them, the Lord has risen. Indeed, he's appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road to Emmaus and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So they turn to each other as soon as Jesus vanishes. Like the prophet Jeremiah, didn't our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures to us? And they go, we gotta go tell somebody about this. And so they get up and they run back to Jerusalem. They kick the door down. Before they can say anything, the other disciples are already celebrating what they now know to be true. Jesus, he's up. He's resurrected. And the Emmaus guys are like, we know. We just saw him too. And and what do they do? They begin to celebrate what God had done. And what's so profound is that what this kicks off is Luke is giving us in this passage, not just an example of what happened that first, you know, resurrection Easter Sunday, but what becomes the pattern for Christians throughout the rest of history for the next 2,000 years. What A.W. Tozer refers to as the fellowship or the collective, if that's more on brand, the collective of, the, the collective of the burning heart where each week Christians all over the world for the past 2,000 some odd years have gathered on a regular basis. They gathered together, like it says in this passage, where they open the scriptures together. They celebrate Jesus together and they break bread together. As once again, we all go on like a little mini road to Emmaus together where our eyes get opened a little bit more and our assumptions get pushed to the side. And so the invitation of why the Sunday gathering is important is Well, Luke seems to think this is how Jesus reveals himself to us on a regular basis, where our assumptions can be pushed aside as we see him for all that he is. And so with each passing week, as we gather together, celebrate Jesus' resurrection, his revelation to each other, open the scriptures, break the bread, we once again take another step on our own road to Emmaus, as we have our eyes open to the real Jesus and the oddity that he is. He is this, this story, this gospel of the Messiah who went into suffering and went into glory is not something that we would have put together on our own. But once we see it, humanity and our story and the story of reality, it couldn't have been any other way. The Messiah who entered into our suffering and to raise us into his glory and all of this according to the scriptures. This is how we see Jesus. And so the invitation for us all today is just to ponder, is this the Jesus that I see? Which, which component, what aspect of this am I prone to set aside? And what, what is that keeping me from seeing in the real Jesus? Let's pray. Father, uh, we uh, acknowledge um, that time and time again, our assumptions get in the way of you. 
um, from seeing your son for all that he really is. And in doing so, God, we uh, are blinded uh, from, from what, what is the, the, the greatest love that we can know. God, not shame and fear and guilt, but forgiveness and courage and boldness and freedom, that these are the things that we're blinding ourselves from. And so my prayer is that, Father, for every single one of us here, you might help us to name the assumption that we have about you in our time of response now. And may we see how the story of Jesus uh, just, just nails that assumption on the cross with him.